Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. All right, good to be with you today. If you're worshiping with us online, we're so glad you're with us. Uh, if we haven't met, I'm Chip Freed, the lead teaching pastor here at Garfield Memorial Church. Uh, it's wonderful to be together for this time and those of us here in person and those online. We're in a teaching series and we're titled Blueprints. It comes from the book of Ephesians, which is a letter really. And I was sharing last week, Ephesians is very unique of all the letters that Paul writes in the scripture. In fact, that's caused some scholars to debate whether Paul actually wrote it himself or maybe a disciple of Paul. Um, in my own studies, there's too much of Paul in here. I believe it's definitely uh, a letter from Paul, but I acknowledge it's extremely different. As I said last week, most of Paul's letters are speaking to some historical context, usually an issue in the church, sometimes a conflict, sometimes <clears throat> a misunderstanding or a question, and Paul's speaking to that, but not in Ephesians. In Ephesians, he's not dealing with some particular issue. He's dealing with the church at large. He's dealing with all of us at large and in the whole journey of our salvation. And 80 words in the Greek language, Paul uses nowhere else he uses in Ephesians. He's, he's writing a treatise. He's, write, he's an architect here, giving us the spiritual drawings of what it means to be a body of Christ together and individually parts of it. And so last week I shared with you when I was talking about God's plan, that God has a plan, a purpose. One of the words Paul uses for plan is the word belio in the Greek, which literally means blueprint. Paul is drawing a blueprint up of what it means to be part of the church. And last week we looked at that long sentence, 202 words in uh, you know, 11 verses. Paul writes one sentence. It's kind of a treatise sentence on what the church is, what we are called to be, and we looked at the subject of that sentence as God, always God. God is the one who creates, unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain, that's Psalm 127. And the point of the predicate of that sentence was God has a plan, you and I are part of it, God's church is a part of it, and Jesus is the point of the plan. So if you missed last week, you see how quick I can preach? And you're like, why not every week, right? Oh. Um, so today I want to look at, Paul begins to turn in these verses that Scott read for us, he begins to turn individually on what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And this is really, really a bold claim, that I'm going to preach on what it means to be a Christian. I better pray before I do that, okay? <laughs> Lord, I'm going to go in some deep water here, and we're going to go with you, and would you move me out of the way? And uh, this may not be a word for everybody, Lord, but I think it's a word for somebody. We want to be more like you. That's what they sang in the spirituals, Lord. I want to be more Christian in my heart. I want to be more loving in my heart. I want to be like Jesus in my heart. Help us do that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> you know when I pray before a message, I'm not sure the plane's going to take off. But... I, 
Paul is really saying here, and I'm going to go with some kind of theological words. These are seminary words. They're very churchy words. But I hope in the next 25, 30 minutes, whatever, that these words will take on some new uh, fiber in your life. Because Paul defines what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Four words that I find in these scriptures, truth and gospel, hope and glory. Truth and gospel, hope and glory. The first one is truth. He says, you also were included in Christ, or you became to be a follower in Christ, a Christian, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. See, before, Christianity doesn't start by you doing something. It starts by you hearing something. And that's why Paul will write in Romans 10, 17, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, I love that in the original Greek language because of what it basically says in the original Greek in Romans 10, 17 is faith comes through hearing the message and the message is Jesus. See, we, we come into a truth. The truth is, is the gospel, okay? That's why we say truth and gospel. He said, you heard a message of truth, and the truth is the gospel. See, gospel had a historical meaning in the Greco-Roman world. It wasn't just in the Bible. Gospel was, literally means good news. Some of you know that. And you've heard me share this. A gospel was an announcement of something that has happened in history that has affected history as a whole. In fact, when there were wars, uh, very meaningful wars, uh, the Greek or Roman uh, you know, times, or an emperor was coming, heralds would run through the street and say, gospel, gospel, the war's been won, okay? Our disaster's been averted. And what the early Christians said, and what God was saying is there's a gospel, there's a truth, a gospel that's so significant that it's going to divide history into two parts. B.C. and A.D. or B.C.E. and C.E.A. however you view that. That this is a life-altering aspect of something that has happened. See, and I have people that will say to me, well, I don't know if I believe in Christianity. And I say, okay, tell me what you think Christianity is. And after they tell me, I'm like, I have no idea what that is, and I don't believe that either. Because the gospel, the good news, is Jesus. That Jesus really lived, that he really died, and he was really born again. That's the gospel. That's a life-altering aspect. And people will say to me sometimes, well, you know, I don't like when the Bible says this, and I'm not sure about that, and the church does communion a certain way. The stuff we fight about in the church is insane. Because here's the deal, and you take it from me, Christianity is not about following rules. Christianity is about following Jesus. He said, follow me. Okay, and we get hung up on the details and we forget that to be a Christian is to believe in the truth that Jesus lived and died and lives again. And that's the basis. If I, if, if, if I can grab that, right, if I can grab that for myself, then, then things will change. Here's the truth. You want to know it? God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the message. And that's what gets lost in the world. There was God's transforming love for this world that changed history. That God showed us on the cross in Jesus Christ that there's no length that God won't do. There's no cost that God won't pay to rescue us. 
That's the truth. Now, I know we don't like truth. I'm like, people go, and there's been people that have mishandled it. I have the truth, you don't. And they abuse us. I get that. But Jesus doesn't abuse people. Jesus doesn't abuse the truth. In fact, Philippians 2 said, even though he was equal in God, with God, he did not take equality with God as something to be elevated, but he humbled himself, took on the form of a servant. I preached on that long ago. I said, when I was growing up, you know, we used to play that game, King of the Hill. You remember that game? Anybody play it? I'm really old. Nobody played King of the Hill. Come on, you 50-year-olds. You are lying. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. Boy, testy. This side is testy. Last, last week it was that side. We're going to get into that again? Um, here's the river, Cuyahoga River, East Cleveland. No, but um, what was I saying? Yeah, King of the Hill. So we used to play, remember King of the Hill, you get up and people come up and you push them down. Jesus didn't play King of the Hill. Jesus played King of the World. And he went down to push us up. That's the gospel. That's the truth. That's what we're following. So do you believe that God so loved the world? Do you believe Peter was telling the truth when he said, when you're near doubt, love others? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Do you believe Paul was saying the truth when he said everything in the universe can be reduced to three things, faith, hope, and love? And the greatest of these is love. Do you believe Jesus was telling the truth when they said, what is the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That is one complete sentence. That is the cure. I, it struck me, I was reading a story about two teenagers during COVID in 2020, Shreya and Saffron Patel, 16 and 18 years old. They were cut off from their grandparents for about a year and a half, and they were extremely, extremely close with their grandparents, and they were worried about their grandparents living in isolation. So they would call them regularly. And one day, uh, Saffron had called her grandma, and she shared that she had gotten a handwritten note from a friend of hers and how much it had encouraged her. And so what these two teenagers decided to do, they said, if that moved our grandmother so much, what if we started writing handwritten letters to people that are in, you know, care facilities and assisted living homes? And so they called all of them in their city and they said, could we get names of people? We just like to write them letters of encouragement. And so they started writing handwritten letters of encouragement, but all of a sudden the word got out and this thing began to spread and it was bigger than what they could handle. So they began to start a company that they called LAI, Letters Against Isolation. I love that. And do you know what started as two sisters writing letters to some care facilities in their homes? Do you know now, two years later, it has become an award-winning nonprofit organization that has 28,000 volunteers. And in the last year, they wrote 460,000 letters to people in assisted living care facilities in seven countries, the U.S., Canada, Ireland, England, Australia, South Africa, and Israel. One care facility woman named Florence said, I love getting these letters. It reminds me when I would get love letters when I was a teenager. And these are love letters, just like Ephesians was a love letter. And it's saying that's the gospel. That's the truth. That's, that's, what it, that's the good news. That's what we're following we're not following rules. We're following Jesus. And while Jesus showed up, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Come and follow me. So it's about truth and the gospel, and it's also about hope. Paul says, we who were the first to put our hope in Christ. Now, hope, we say, well, is that the big deal? Yeah, it's a really big deal in the Bible. In fact, biblical hope, if you read the Greek and everything else, is very different than when you use the word hope 
in English in our time. We say things like this, God help us. I hope the Browns win tomorrow night. Right, I hope. We, we, we put it that way because I'm not sure, but I hope it's real. I hope it happens. See, the early Christians didn't know anything about that kind of hope. Biblical hope was a life-changing certainty about the future. It was, it, it was something you could bank your life upon. And they did, right? Um, I love this scripture that comes out of Hebrews. And Hebrews is at a time when the church was really being persecuted. It, it started to change in Hebrews and First Peter. And it says this, we, these are, who have taken refuge might be strongly encouraged to what? To seize the hope set before us. We have this hope, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. I return to that verse a lot. And I've, I have never been to the catacombs myself, but I've had friends who had. And I had a professor who was an archaeology a professor who served in the catacombs. And I've shared this before, but this was a time many buried in those catacombs were, were killed in the Colosseum. And there's records of Christians being set on fire and lions bearing down on them. And they held hands with their families and sang hymns. Where did they get that, that, where did they get that foundation? They got it in this. They got in a certainty of hope. In fact, they say in the catacombs you can tell Christian graves because they're marked by three symbols. Some are marked by a cross. Some are marked by the, the fish, the ichthus, right? But they said the number one symbol on Christian graves in the catacombs is the anchor. And every time I hear that, I can't help remember, I'm a big boater. Some of you guys know a fisherman that. I got my first boat when I was 16 years old. Uh, my dad helped me buy it, and we had a larger boat, and we would boat on Lake Erie and Ohio River and up on Lake Chautauqua and all kinds of different places. And so when I, when I was 16, I got my own boat. My dad felt that I should go to Coast Guard and get what was called power squadron training. They just started that. Really, anybody could drive a boat. That's why this would make crazy accidents. But, but at that time, if you were going to license on Lake Erie, you had to get power squadron training. Well, they had never done that before. So, there, so I was 16. I'm in a power squadron class at the Coast Guard with all these old salt fishermen, man, who have been fishing on Lake Erie for 65 years. And they weren't very impressed with the 22-year-olds running the class. They were like, son, I knew more about boating and navigation than you, do, you, know, you did when you were born. And so some of them were a little crusty and a little had attitudes. And I'll forget one old salt captain, he got up for his little exam and he was standing there and this little punk guy, kid was kind of didn't like him. He goes, okay, captain. He said, you're out on Lake Erie and you're 10 miles offshore and a northeasterner blows off from Canada and it hits you right on your bow. A big storm. What do you do? He said, easy son. You throw an anchor out in the direction of the storm. Kid didn't kind of like that. He goes, okay, well, what if at the same time another storm hits you starboard and comes from your east? What do you do? He said, I'll take another anchor and throw it out to the east. Okay, well, what if a third storm, like what is this, De you know, deadliest catch? I mean, come on, you know, what if a third storm, I'm sitting there 16 watching a 70-year-old. He goes, a third storm comes up and hits you from the west. What are you going to do? He said, I'll take another anchor out and throw it to the west. He said, Captain, I have a question for you. He said, where are you getting all these anchors? He said, the same place you're getting all your blankety-blank storms. <laughs> That's Christian hope, man. 
I don't care the way you hit me from the north, the south, the east, the west. The devil is a liar. God has an anchor. And I can trust in him. And I can hope in him. And that's what, that's what the Christian hope is all about. Now, what do we hope in? I, gotta, I want to land my plane in this. We hope, so there's truth and gospel. There's hope, tangible hope, anchor hope, real hope. Hope in glory. We hope in glory. Do you see what he said? He said, um, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This is a stick of dynamite. And I really hope today when you leave here, Ephesians 1.14 might be a go-to verse for you. Because Paul said what our firm hope is, is what he calls God's glory. What is God's glory? It's, a, it's the glory of, of the truth. It's the glory of the gospel. It's the glory of, of unconditional love. It's a glory of what God is doing in the world. It's a glory of where we're going. It's, it's, it's everything we sing about. It's everything we clap about. It's everything we amen about. And, and Paul says in this one verse, three components to this glory. Three, I'm going to try to hit you. One, you're a treasured possession in this glory. Two, there's redemption in this glory. And three, there's a deposit of this glory. So first, can you believe that God says he's given us an inheritance? We talked about that last week. And we who are what? God's possession? And Peter said treasured possession, special treasure? What's an inheritance? It's, it's, it's the net worth. It's, it's what you have left. And God says, you are my inheritance. Do you know who's saying that? This is God. This is God who owns the stars. This is God who owns the universe. And God says, when I look at you, I feel wealthy. You are my treasured possession. Think about that. Um, you know, if, if you are living in an apartment somewhere and you have your inheritance, you have some family heirloom, you have some bag of, of jewels, and, and it's worth a hundred times anything else you have in your life. When you smell fire or the fire alarm's gonna do, what do you grab, right? You grab that and you get your iPhone and everything's okay, <laughs> right? And you run out because you've got your inheritance and... God says in Jesus Christ, when I look at you, I see my inheritance. Man, oh gosh, you know, we live in a world, and Paul is writing this a thousand years before anybody talked about self-esteem, right? Now everybody talks about self-esteem, right? Nobody talked about thousands of years ago. And I thought, if this isn't a cure for self-esteem, I don't know what is, that you are God's inheritance? That you are God's treasured possession? That when the fires of hell came on Jesus, he grabbed you? For the joy that was set before him, he endureth the cross? What was the joy? It was us. I mean, that ought to cure self-esteem. I googled what the world's cures for self-esteem are now. And I read on the internet, so these have to be true. And there were six that they said are the six best cures for self-esteem. You ready for them? One, think of your talents. Two, Lose weight. I'll button this in a few weeks. Um, three, set some reachable goals and reach them. Four, spend more time doing what you really enjoy doing. Five, spend more time with people who really appreciate you. And six, pat yourself on the back. And I said, that's the world's cure to self-esteem? How does that compare to Ephesians 1.14? 
That's a dewdrop, and this is the ocean. You are the special treasured possession of the author of the universe, and he's shown in Jesus Christ just how important you are to him, what lengths he will go, what great costs he will pay to rescue us and save us from ourselves. And, and the second thing in this, he says, you, we have this hope in glory of being God's special possession. But then he said, this one kind of grabbed me. You know, you believe, you're marked with a seal, you've got this inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Until the redemption? So, so it's saying to us, you are God's treasured possession and guaranteed a future with redemption? Aren't we already redeemed? Didn't we sing that in the old days? I am redeemed, washed in the blood, right? We're redeemed. Jesus came to redeem us, to set us free from our sins. That's why he said, on the cross it was finished. So Paul, what are you talking about? That one day we're going to have the redemption of those who are God's possession. And it hit me when Jesus Christ set me free and redeemed me. He set me free from my past sins. But he did not set me free from the power of sin that's still in the world and still affects my life. Right? So we've been set free from past sins, but we're still, like God said to Cain, be careful, sin is always lurking at the door. We live in a broken world. We live around broken people. Sin is always there. There are tests, there are trials, there are temptations. But one day, God is not just going to redeem the past sins. One day, God's glory is going to fall on us and fall on the world, and God is going to fix everything that's broken in us and around us and in the universe and the world. That's what's coming. The redemption of the world, and that's why Paul says another place, I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with what? The glory about to be revealed to us. For the whole creation, he says, has been groaning. And we individuals are groaning under the weight of this. But there's one day the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Everything wrong. It's going to be made right. I love that little line in uh, The Lord of the Rings. I think it's Pippin the Hobbit that after the evil is defeated, and you know, I told you that Tolkien wrote everything about Jesus. And after the evil is defeated, I think it was little Pippin says to Gandalf, Gandalf, are all the sad things becoming untrue? Do you know when the glory of God comes, all the sad things, they're just not going to go away. They're going to become untrue. One of my mentors, Dr. Gerald Mann from Austin, Texas, he's in heaven now, but he, he was an important mentor in my life, and I talked to him a few months before he died, and I said, Dr. Mann, what are you looking forward to most in heaven? And he said to me, his answer, you need to understand who he was. Um, he, he had a, his oldest daughter, Cindy, was born deaf. Uh, Lois's wife contracted measles. This is way back, I think, in the 40s. And, and uh, Cindy uh, was affected by that in the womb, and she was born deaf. And back then, they didn't have a lot of resources. And Dr. Mann was a struggling preacher out in Texas. And so through the, through the blessing of a benefactor in his congregation, they paid for Cindy to go f to a school for the deaf out in Boston. And, and she went out there, but she didn't handle it really well. You know, she separated from her family. And she was out there until she became a late teenager. And, and, and after that time, she became extremely addicted to drugs. And Cindy spiraled into a tough life, and she became pregnant. She didn't even know who the man was, and, and she had a child. And, and when that child got to be a teenager, Dr. Mann and his wife had to sue their own daughter for custody. 
Dr. Mann had two heart attacks during his life, and he told me he knew the blockage in his life was his strained relationship with his daughter. And it broke him up to the day he died. To the day he died, he was separated and isolated from his daughter who he loved. And I said, Dr. Mann, what are you looking most forward to in heaven? And he talked about his deaf and drug-addicted daughter. He said, I can't wait to see the look on Cindy's face the first time she hears the angels sing. See, that's glory. That's not just the sad things going away. That's the sad things becoming untrue. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, he said, if we really understand that, if we understand that kind of glory, it will make the best times leavable and the worst times bearable. And that's the glory that, that we hope in. That's waiting the full redemption of things, okay? But I want to hang my hat on this last one because I think it's the most important. We hope in this glory that obviously being told we're God's treasured possession, being told that all the sad things are going to become untrue, that there's a full redemption that's at one day coming. But lastly, he says, when you believe you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, you know what deposit means in the Greek? It means first installment. So what, what God is saying, when you accept Christ, when you believe that the gospel is really true, when you understand that God loves us as much and you surrender your life to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you don't just wait for a future glory. Karl Marx, some of that future glory comes into you now. You get a first installment. You get a deposit. The Holy Spirit shows up in your life. And I don't think we understand the transforming power of the Holy Spirit that comes into our life that can transform us and change us and reshake us because it's not just waiting for the final glory, but it's participating in some of that final glory now. Now. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is in you. My grandma used to say to me, baby brother, if the kingdom of heaven is in you, you ought to leave a little heaven behind you wherever you go. We've got a deposit of the future of glory of God in us now. Do you know how life-changing that can be? Do you know how transforming that can be? I didn't know how good a marriage could be until Terry and I got married before God and said, God, be the head of our marriage. Be the head of our lives. And I got to tell you, I had dreams about romance and love and all that stuff. I didn't know it could be this good. Because God comes in and he reshapes stuff, man. He changes you. I, I, I was a revenge kind of guy, I'm going to tell you. I was raised in Youngstown, not in Cushy Akron. I was in Youngstown. Sorry, LeBron, I was from Youngstown. We, you know, we, were, we, we dealt with stuff, different issues down then, right? We got into a lot of scraps down then. I was a revenge kind of guy. Do you know I can't even really remember what that felt like? I'm not seeking revenge anymore. I'm not trying to get even. I just want unity and wholeness and love. And that's what I work so hard for, and that's what I give my life to. But I do remember when I was just coming to Christ, I was coming back to Christ through my wife. Uh, we were engaged, and, and I was just coming back to Jesus, and I started realizing this deposit that God put in me, it was starting to change me. Now, if you haven't changed all the way, believe me, I say you can be saved all at once. Change takes a little while. And he's continuing to grow me up to be more like Jesus. And that's why Paul says the way of the cross is foolishness to the world. But to those of us who are being saved, don't you like the God? Paul said, being saved. I look into a mirror poorly, we said last week. But one day I'll know he's continuing to grow me up. And I had just started to grow me up. I was an infant in Christ. And I still had a lot of Youngstown in me. 
And I was selling, I was around my business in the construction industry, and I was selling underground piping to contractors. Now there's a rule, if you are a contractor in Ohio, you have to own a bar. <laughs> true, true story. And it has to play country western. There's a rule in Ohio, at least there was back then. So a lot of the orders that I had to write with my contractors, they would, you know, because they're working for 12 hours during the day, and meet me at the bar at night, and I'd go out to the bar and write the purchaser on a napkin. And, and there was a bar in North Lima, Ohio. I pray to God my wife is not listening online right now. Honey, if you are, uh, turn the channel. Okay. She'll kill me when she knows I told this. But I, I, it came out at Heritage. I didn't mean it to come out. And they, they're like, now we're going to tell everybody if you don't. So I'm stuck. But I, there was a bar named Bucko's in North Lima, if anybody was down from that area, and the contractor that owned it was a customer of mine, and Terry and I had just got engaged a few weeks before. I didn't drag her out to stuff like that, but he had just gotten married, so he said, look, I'm going to give you that big Woodsfield sewer job. It was like $300,000 of material. It was a big job. He said, I'm going to give it to you, but we're going to come out tonight. You got to come, and you got to bring Terry to Bucko's because I want to celebrate your engagement and me getting married. Did I mention Country Western Bar? Yeah. Do you understand my wife is African-American? Yeah. I guarantee you we were the first interracial couple in the history of the world to walk into Bucko's in North Lima. And nobody had to say anything because they told us as soon as we walked in. You ever remember those commercials where they walk in and the, and the, the music stops playing? I lived that. And uh, I, luckily I sat down with the owner, but people were visibly, visibly upset. And uh, we were there, and, 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 you know, Terry was being a good sport. And uh, Butch gets a call. They had a water line break, and another one of their jobs, he said, oh, my gosh. He said, me and Cindy, we got to go, Chip, but your meal's paid for. You and Terry just finished eating, and, and uh, I got cared for. And he took off and left us in Buckos <laughs> in North Lima, Ohio. And all of a sudden, the guys wearing the flags on their heads. Now, these weren't American flags. They were those, what was that country down south that tried to take over America, Robert E. Lee, that group, you know? They were on their heads and that. And, and one of them got visibly agitated next to us. And I'm just, I'm telling the way to look. We're done. We're out of here. And, and he says, I have to go to the bathroom. And he stood up, and he pushed his chair back, and his chair slammed into Terry's chair. I said to my wife, go to the car. She said, honey, no, 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 we don't go to the car. See, she knew me in my pre-Jesus days. <laughs> so she'll tell you all this too. She went out. Our SUV was parked. Looking in there, she picked up the phones. These were, you guys won't believe me. Remember, well, my kids don't believe. We had time when phones were wired to the cars. Remember that? Like you, you couldn't go but eight feet. Remember that? She took the phone wired to the car and she took, she put 911 in the phone and she had her finger on send. And I got nose to nose with this brother, man. I was trembling. And I said to him, do you know Jesus? True story. He goes, ah, I said, answer me this. Do you know Jesus? He said, I don't effing know Jesus. I said, get to know him. He said, why? I said, because he just saved your miserable life. And I walked out. That was real growth for me, man. That was real growth. Now, I beat the dashboard up on the way home, but I was, I was changing, man. And I realized on that drive home, I said, God has put something in me. And it's fighting my natural inclinations. How dare we stay up all night worried because we've been slighted? 
How dare we hold grudges for stuff we almost can't remember? When God says, you are my special possession, and I have a redemption that is going to make everything untrue that has ever gone wrong, and guess what? I've put a deposit of that glory through the power of the Holy Spirit in you now, so you don't have to be so, you know, uh, earthly bound that that you don't know that you're heavenly bound. You don't have to be so caught up in your old self, Chip. You can change, you can turn, you can, you, you can grow. You can think things you never thought before. You can do things you've never done before. If Danny Simpson would have known that, he'd have never gone to jail. Danny Simpson held up a, a bank in Ottawa, Canada in 1990, and he, and he robbed the bank of $6,000. He was apprehended, and they found out that the gun that he had used in that robbery was from the Ross Rifle Company in, in Ontario City, or Quebec City. It was, it was made in 1918. It was an antique, and it was valued at $150,000. Danny held up a bank for $6,000 with a gun that he owned that was worth $150,000. He went to jail. The gun went to a museum because Danny didn't know everything he needed for a new life was right there in his hands. God is saying, I have put a deposit in you. I have put something in you. That's why Paul could say, greater is he who is in you than the one who is in the world. Paul could later write that God who has begun a good work in you will perform it under the day of Jesus. Christ. When Timothy got upset, Paul looked at his junior assistant and said, now stir up the gifts of God that are in you because God did not give you a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. And at the end of Ephesians, Paul is going to write now unto him who is exceedingly abundantly able to do more than you could ask or think according to his power at work in you and in the church. Stir that thing up, friends. Stir that thing up. Don't say you can't change. Don't say you you can't shift your attitude. Don't say that you can't be more forgiving. Don't say that you can't be kinder. Don't say you can't be more loving. Because when you do that, you don't understand the deposit of the one who has put glory in you. Amen? Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, come. Stir us up. Let us to realize, let us to really, my God, how different would we behave if we really understood we are your inheritance. We're what you're most proud of. We're what you treasure the most. And that you have a day of redemption coming. That, that the, the sufferings that we know at some point won't even be worth being compared because you're going to erase all that. But glory to God, you have deposited your own presence in us of future glory. Help us to be aware of that, Lord. And help us to stir it up that we might be for you, the people of God. That's the blueprint you left us. Help us to live it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Let all God's people say, amen.